Welcome to The Scrum, the WGBH News podcast about politics and media. We're recording in the WGBH Satellite Studio at the Boston Public Library's landmark Philip Johnson Building in Copley Square. The space is big and airy, and I'm hoping this week's Scrum will channel some of its magic. I'm Peter Kadzis, and I help run WGBHnews.org. I'm filling in for Adam Riley, who was on assignment trying to figure out the likely impact of early voting. Joining the Scrum today are three of the most energetic and irreverent talents covering Massachusetts politics. We have Gin Dumchus of MassLive.com, Lauren Dzinski from Politico, and WGBH News State House reporter Mike Dean. Hey, Peter, how are you? Anyone else going to say hi? Hello. There we go. I will be impersonating all their voices throughout the podcast. (laughs) No, we are just keeping it irreverent. Thank you. There we go. Okay. You know, before we wade into uh, Bay State politics, I should explain to our listeners that Mike, Ginn, and Lauren work almost on top of each other in the, uh, let's say, classically seedy and ramshackle (laughs) Statehouse newsroom. Uh, Which one of you has been there the longest? Oh, I think Ginn has been in the State House uh, the longest, kind of on and off. Um, about ten years, yeah. About ten years. Yeah. I've been doing eight straight at the State House, so I, I might have more hours clocked than you, Ginn. And Lauren is <laughs> catching like, up with us. I'm a, with, I'm a, I'm a relative newbie by comparison, but <laughs> what I don't have in time, I make up for in scrap. <laughs> oh, okay. Very true. Is there much <laughs> contrast between the State House uh, newsroom and in in the WGBH news studio? <laughs> That's a, a good question. The, the new one, or the new one? <laughs> yeah. Well, this one is much airier. Um, I Wait, think I said that. Even when you trade the Back Bay for Beacon Hill, it's really not much of a difference in, in crowd. Um, Still Brahmins. There is a library in the State House. Although we do shout <laughs> at each other, I think at, across, across the newsroom, and there's there's a very good interplay between us. We can, we bounce ideas off each other. It's very collegial. It's true. Although the coffee is much better here at the BPL. Okay, <laughs> that, that that's a good note to uh, to segue. Our theme today is disturbing the peace. I've got to say that the last two years on Beacon Hill have been um, so civilized that um, it reminds me of what it would be like if someone acted out your junior high school civics book. But I I have a sense that there's a lot of tension building below the surface there. And, um, you know, my gut tells me that things at some point could explode around the T. Um, let's start with you, Lauren. Do you think the tea is going to disrupt the civil peace on Beacon Hill? Is uh, things going to come to blow over privatization? I think with the tea, you're seeing all of the underlying simmering tension that maybe outside observers haven't really noticed between leadership um, at the state house that we've all kind of been seeing. And so, the, the, yeah, I think I think you're right. The T is kind of the first tangible example in which we can see that. Uh, one of the main issues, of course, is that Governor Charlie Baker has said that he refuses to raise taxes. Um, we have a lot of transit advocates uh, saying that they want to raise taxes for things like the T. Um, obviously, Speaker uh, Robert Leo said that, you know, he is also on board with this no taxes push, um, whereas the Senate president is, you know, he would much rather, you know, have funding for things like that. And so that that's one tangible example, you know, where where that, you know, difference uh, is seen. How about privatization? Ian, do you think the battle's going to become nasty on that? I mean, up on Beacon Hill, the legislature gave the MBTA control board 
the power to do a lot of things. But I, I get a sense now that people are beginning to balk. Right, and I think Dean, Dean had a great headline uh, uh, recently about, uh, I think it was uh, Democrats upset with Governor Baker over him exercising the power they gave him, uh, something along those lines. Um, and I, and I it think was pithier when I wrote it. Yes, uh, yeah, it was shorter too. But, but uh, I, I think for, for some Democrats, they are seeing pressure from the unions who are, who are getting upset and who feel that Baker might be taking this too far. I think some understand where Baker is coming on the money room, the cash counting operation. Some of them understand that, that the tea should be focused on making the tea run well, not the money room run, run well. But I think you could see uh, the, the, the pressure building on that front, uh, particularly since uh, Baker has a li very limited time frame where he can privatize. And I think you're, you're seeing the unions kind of trying to jump on that, pressure legislators. Uh, at a recent rally, they, uh, they kind of re-upped something from the 1990s. I remember driving around with my dad weld uh, uh, privatization, a weld scam. And what they've been doing recently is Xing out Weld's name and putting Weld's protege's name, Baker, right, uh, right in there. Yeah, I think what we're seeing as far as uh, de the Democrats in the interplay with the governors, the battle lines are starting to be drawn. I've been having the hardest time answering the question when I asked Democrats, what, do you th what did you think he was going to do with these powers that you granted him? And it was in last year's budget. And they say, oh, well, we thought he was going to get the T in order and he was going to do a few things here and there. And they don't have a very good answer. I think the speaker does have a good answer. He, he agrees with the money room move. He agrees with some of the police dispatch. A lot of the things that the Fiscal Management Control Board has been doing already. Um, you're going to see those battle lines when it comes to bus drivers, especially when it comes to the core functions of the T. If Baker does move forward with plans to privatize certain bus routes, uh, bus services, maybe even some train or bus maintenance services, that's when Democrats are going to say, oh, this is not what we signed up for. Uh, and they could either legislatively try to rescind those powers from him or stall out until, as Gin says, that uh, window closes. How would they stall out? You can fight it. You can, f you can have those advocacies, the, the unions fight it in court. Uh, I think there's a lot of different ways that it could happen. There could be pressure in the legislature to move a bill to correct it. Um, if there's going to be so much trouble in getting one of these contracts signed that, uh, you know, make it unpalatable for the T to, to go after it. And I'll tell you, my gut is that the public, to varying degrees, but would largely stick with Charlie Baker as long as you don't touch the bus drivers and the train conduct the train drivers. I'm, uh, I'm not using the, the official lingo here. Um, I even think the T could get away with privatizing maybe some, some of the, the extra routes, the surplus routes. But um, a couple of weeks ago, though, I had a phone conversation with someone who's relatively close to the governor. And he didn't say this, but I got the impression that they thought, look, we've got to strike while the iron is hot. And I said, geez, I think you guys might be overreaching. You, you may be assuming you have more of a mandate. Any reaction to my gut? I mean, I, you're up there. The three of you are up there. That, that, that's just my, my gut reaction. To I think so. Thing. I think um, much how you feel is how the speaker may feel when he thinks that you know, the public's with them in order to do the things, that low-hanging fruit kind of privatization that uh, a lot of people kind of saw the writing on the wall. And that's you know, the money room, the cash collection, the things we've seen the T's board uh, doing already. When it comes to those driver jobs, uh, those, you know, those Carmen Union jobs that they're going to fight tooth and nail over, that's when it becomes a political headache for Democrats. And when it becomes something that uh, really taking the public out of public transportation, as the unions like to say, where you know, the, the voters in this town might 
to look at this a little more closely. The, the difference, though, is is that uh, you know the last the last privatization fight there wasn't Uber, there wasn't Lyft, and there wasn't a service like Bridge. And and I think what the Baker administration is, is saying, like this, you know, we're, we're in a sharing economy now, and it, there might be an opportunity for government to take advantage of that with late night service, you deploying, you know, contracting out with someone like uh, some company like Bridge. Um, you know, it, it, that, that, that would probably be their argument. It's, it's, a, it's a new era. Yeah, that scratches the surface of what a lot of advocates are beginning to say is that we don't want a two-tiered uh, transportation system. The, these new, uh, you know, innovative app-based startup uh, transportation systems are very good, but they're also more expensive than your, you know, $2, $2.50 a pop um, T-Pass. So people are really going to be looking out for equity when it comes to these types of things. And that's where late night, especially, that has a uh, larger than usual uh, ridership among low-income people. I think also, you know, looking at the things that, you know, the administration and the governor is pursuing, so much of what he wants to do is transportation reform. But in looking at how our system is run and the way that it is structured, it is so hard to change things and to really make the trains run on time. And so in order for him to continue with, you know, the Mr. Fix-It nickname, it's it's all about going after the low-hanging fruit and making sure that he can pursue certain things that he can point to in two years, should he actually say that he is running for re-election. But he can say, look, it, these are all the things that I cleaned up and we are on the way to making the core system function better. But these things then allow the, the system, you know, to work more easily. Before we move on to the budget, which is the, the next thing I want to tackle, you know, my thought on this is that the, the train drivers, the bus drivers, those aren't abstract jobs. Those of us who take the tea, we see those people every day. And that, again, you have a good point about the sharing economy and all, but that's awfully Clinton-esque, if you will. You, you, you know, it, it may be true, but it, it, it's abstract. What's not abstract, though, is the high cost of the tea. The tea costs a fortune. And, you know, the service is getting better, but to me, it's all a matter of costs. And I think this is going to be a real challenge for the governor. But, but let's talk budget for a second here. For the first time in a long time, I get the sense that the Speaker of the House and the Speaker of the Senate, whoever saw the friendly or perhaps not so friendly rivalry uh, in, in the back rooms of Beacon Hill, may be getting ready to gang up on Governor Baker. You know, am I whistling in the wind or is there something to that? Um, I think on some things they're going to pick their fights. Um, so I mean on the budget. On the budget, yeah, I, I, I think so. We've got to remember the budget is uh, where a lot of the, the bread is buttered for these Democrats in the House and Senate. Um, what happens, a lot of what this budget deficit argument that we're looking at right now is the governor is blaming the legislature for restoring all of the cuts that he vetoed out of the budget. So here are all the things for your, you know, your new fire department in you know, whatever district and your senior center in this other district, the things that electeds really like and need that get packed into that budget. Baker cuts them out. The legislature overrides his veto, puts them back in the budget, and now, according to Baker, all of a sudden, we have a $395 million <laughs> budget deficit. Um, but those Democrats are going to fight for those line items, and that means that it, it turns attention to what needs to get cut in government, and if people just determine that there's no, no longer anything to cut, then the tax uh, conversation will start. But I think this is also something that happens every single budget cycle, regardless of whether it's Democratic or Republican governor, right? I mean, Deval Patrick, he tried to cut the budget, not as much as, as, uh, as Baker, but certainly he would constantly see members of his own party voting to override his vetoes. Um, the legislature has 
a clear picture in their mind of what they want in the budget. And they believe that the revenues are there. Now, we've seen historically they've been wrong about that. Uh, but they continue to press their case and they continue to add money that might not be there because that's, that's what the legislature does. They, they're very good at spending money. <laughs> and they're very good at finding pockets of money to, to cover those gaps when they have to. Uh, or, like Gin says, supposing that those revenues may be stronger uh, in the long term than they turn out to be. But I think the budget is kind of one of the rare examples almost of, of seeing this cohesion between the two branches of government right now. Okay, so, so right now we're seeing the speaker and the governor that are kind of working in much closer step. I wouldn't necessarily say lockstep, but they're like almost there, um, which is surprising given that one is a Republican and one is a Democrat, but you see them in line both in the governor's non-tax pledge, or you know, pledge not to raise yeah. taxes. Uh, you're seeing them in support of uh, question two, which is raising the cap on charter schools in the state, uh, as well as question four, which is a ban on legalized marijuana, uh, which Senate President Rosenberg came out last week um, or two weeks ago now saying that he you know would support that he would you know vote in favor of legalizing marijuana and these are these are kind of more like policy based things that you would think that Democrats would generally kind of get in line together and all and all support so uh, so seeing kind of that breakdown between the two you know leaders of the two branches of you know in the in the legislature is, is kind of surprising well it, it strikes me that in in Charlie Baker's first year as governor I, I think he got the better slightly of the legislature by squeezing a little more than he had to out of the budget. Am I wrong in that? I mean, I'm, by the way, I may be. You guys, the three of you, know more about the budget than I do. I think so. I mean, if you're, if you're implying that there's a downside to that, that maybe he squeezed the Democrats a little too much, and now it's kind of coming to, to bite him back. It's not so much a downside. I think it's just human nature. It's like, hey, you know, Charlie took us for a little bit of a ride last year. We're not going to let him take us for such as much of a ride this year. I mean, to me, the legislature is is um, grossly incompetent in in uh, you know just shocking in the the way that they are willing to spend more money than we take in, and then figure well we'll deal with it later on. I mean, the the speaker and the Senate president I, I don't include in that, but um, you know, to me, the legislature should just be. Sent to they, Devil's Island. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't let Rosenberg and DeLeo off on that. I think that you know they are in charge of that. You know, especially on the House side, the leadership is very powerful. I don't think there's too too much that the Ways and Means Committee does without DeLeo signing off. And likewise with Karen Spilka and uh, Senate President Rosenberg, they you know they hold that that mantle. They have that responsibility for the budget. And both of them are former Ways and Means chairs themselves. They know how the in and outs of these things and how they work. What you're looking at is kind of how centralized the, the power structure really is, and that is that these um, backbench reps and senators, uh, more so in the House, again, are going to follow leadership in lockstep, and that's why uh, when you can spend more than you may have or may anticipate you will end up with, it's not the worst thing in the world to kick the can down to the executive office down the hallway and let Charlie Baker's A&F uh, administration of Finance, figure out how to close that gap. Okay, sounds like three-card Monty to me. <laughs> but let, let's talk about charter schools. And what I'd like to talk about is I wonder what future, whatever happens with the charter vote, and the, the latest polls from Commonwealth suggest that the charter 
expansion is going to go down to defeat. But whatever, whether that's those polls are right or wrong, I have the sense that things are so bitter about the charter debate that any constructive legislating around education reform is dead for the near future. Any thoughts about that? Well, I think when, when the, the Senate uh, proposed its uh, charter school bill earlier this year, it was labeled dead on arrival uh, by, by a number of pundits and, and even members of the House, too. Uh, and, and House Speaker DeLeo said, you know, we're, this, this is just going to have to go to the ballot. Th this, this is where the, the three parties of Massachusetts come into play, right? Um, Dan, Dan Kennedy has made this point. He said, you've got liberal Democrats, conservative Democrats, and Republicans. And right now, uh, conservative Democrats and Republicans are aligned on charter schools. Um, is that going to be, be enough? You still need the Senate, uh, the liberal Senate, to work on education reform. And if uh, Pat Jalen, Sonia Chang-Diaz, and, and Senate President Rosenberg have a vision that they, uh, they want to ensure uh, gets through, and it's, it, it's in opposition to what uh, House Speaker DeLeo and, and Rep. Alish Pice, the Education Committee Chair, want to do, then I think it's going to be tough to see anything happening over the next year. That might be different, though. If it, if it passes, I could, I could see the legislature uh, going in and trying to, trying to fix the funding formula. That could be. If it passes, uh, and actually a lot of these things, the marijuana ballot question as well, we're going to be talking a lot if that passes about the legislature taking further steps to regulate and tax. But on the charter school point, yeah, the House had a, a plan to kind of reform the regulations that run um, and administer charter schools in the state. You've got to remember, these are 23-year-old uh, is a 23-year-old law that established charter schools in the state, and we've been operating under that law ever since. You can't tell me that in a quarter century we haven't learned what's worked and what hasn't and the better way to go. And so if the question is to expand it, it doesn't include any kind of reform to that 23-year-old law. And that's what a, a lot of people have a problem uh, with this charter question, that it only raises the cap and does nothing else to improve the charter system as we've had it. Uh, will there be pressure to reform it if, if it fails? I don't think so. I think the unions are going to see that as a big victory. They're going to see it as a mandate. And the legislature is going to see it as their excuse not to mess with charters for the foreseeable future. Lauren, you have a read on charters? I agree. No, I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right in terms of the fact that it is so contentious. Some of that also lends itself to the fact that most of the consultants in the city are you know, working on one side or the other uh, for the ballot question. So, you know, everyone kind of has a little bit of a horse in the game. But again, I mean, it's education. It is something that is still new and the state is still trying to kind of grapple with, even though the law is 23 years old. But I agree. I think that if it doesn't pass the legislature, which is pretty risk averse in terms of dealing with things that are thorny and complicated unless they absolutely have to deal with it. Um, and if marijuana legalization passes, but the charter cap doesn't, or, you know, lifting the charter cap doesn't, there's more than enough um, issues with, uh, you know, taxation around, you know, marijuana and things like that, that, you know, yeah. the legislature is going to be busy enough, they won't have time to deal with the charter stuff, at least in the coming, you know, legislative year. The thing um, that strikes me about the, the charter question is, it's so open-ended that just as I wonder if the people pushing for a lot of privatization with the T may be overreaching, I wonder if the people who put the charter question on the ballot overreached when they, they had basically um, charters can expand forever instead of having some cap on it. 
because a couple of years ago, it seemed like a good idea. It, it, it doesn't seem that way now. There, there seems more political resistance. I mean, I've said that I'm in favor of the, the charter cap being raised, but um, I increasingly feel that I'm in the minority. I think this ballot question, if it's, if it's a slim margin of victory for the no side, if it, goes, if it gets defeated by uh, only uh, maybe a few thousand votes or something, or tens of thousands of votes, you're going to see that in the margins. And those margins are people who may uh, agree with the ideology of, yes, charter schools are good, they're innovative, they can be done well, they can be good, but I don't like this particular language in the charter debate, what they put forward, a lot like what you were just saying, Peter. So you're going to have folks say, well, maybe the legislature should do this. Maybe we do need to reform how they're managed. We need to address funding. We need to address enrollment. We need to address their, their you know, claims about discipline, their claims about, uh, you know, complaints about special education, um, enrollment, uh, you know, retention, all these things that the no people will bring up that say that it's not a level playing field. They see a lot of other issues that the ballot question language simply doesn't touch. And uh, that could be a problem for people who are on the bubble. But I think, you know, when we were initially looking at the even the possibility of a ballot question to deal with charters, that was one of the reasons why the Senate tried to act to try and legislate through ballot question is so ham-handed and is so across the board. There's no opportunity for nuance. That was an argument that Senate President Stan Rosenberg specifically had, and yet that was still, you know, it's, it still made the legislation dead in the water. But we're also seeing concerns about phrasing of the ballot questions and what they specifically mean. Also with uh, question four, which would legalize marijuana, and the way in which it's done and the process by which that happens and what happens subsequently. I mean, we see ballot questions as this opportunity to have this referendum on these big issues, but it's so easy to forget that these issues are so nuanced and perhaps just because there's a question on your ballot, it doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. And it just ultimately, it just means at the end of the day, you just have to read the question and actually figure out what you actually are voting for. Well, let's stick with Stan Rosenberg for a second. I was surprised not shocked, but I was a little surprised that Rosenberg declared himself in favor of um, the legalized marijuana. It certainly f flies with his constituency uh, around Amherst, but um, I'm I was a little surprised that he was so definitive about that. How well, about he, you, Gin? He's been he was pretty cute throughout the year. I mean, we reporters would always ask him, you know, how are you voting on this? And and he'd say, you know, well, I believe that you know people should do what they want as long as they're not hurting anybody else. And, and that was kind of as far as he would go. And I figured that would be his stance up, up through Election Day, along with his, you know, his hatred of ballot questions as a, a legislating maneuver. So I, I was a little surprised that he would come out. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe it was the polling that prompted him or, or something else. Maybe he thought it over in his head. You know what? He said this is a blunt instrument, but if it in the end helps uh, Massachusetts get to a better place on marijuana, then I'll support it. One it thing might... that is interesting, too, is that he specifically is going against the findings of his special committee of senators that went out to Colorado to specifically study their legalization laws, and they determined that passing the marijuana law would not be a good thing. Uh, and yet, you know, he's, he still comes out in support of it. And so 
yeah, that's, that's I, I think that stands that stands uh, faith in government. It, uh, it, well, it, right. it, it puts it puts the Senate president uh, in the catbird seat here, in that he is now the chief advocate uh, for this question and the guy who's going to be in charge of its new regulatory law. We've seen the Senate president and the Speaker talk about, and uh, the, the Lieutenant Governor a little bit today talk about how to implement this and what other legislation is going to be necessary to regulate, enforce, and especially tax. Because you got a tax to pay for the enforcement uh, uh, of you know, read by buying. But now all of a sudden, Stan Rosenberg is the guy who can shuffle that through his Senate because he's got his foreign against. He gets a uh, marijuana reform bill through the Senate. It could stand a very good chance of uh, you know becoming law and regulating it the way he wants to, even if though he he hates ballot questions. But the power of the tax sits in the House. Correct. It's true. Yes, that is. A good I point. mean, th that's part of what I don't. Get here, or is or is this some convoluted continuation of the the backroom feuding between the Senate President and the the House Speaker? Well, that was one of the issues, at least in terms of whether or not that ballot question could levy a tax, right? Like that was that was a concern as to like the constitutionality of that question, right? Like it's it's still kind of something that's up in the air. And again, these ballot questions, they are written a certain way, but the actual implementation and process by which the things that they are promised can occur, it's a whole other ballgame. But, but the activists, I think, to, to a degree, they, they know that. I mean, we, we would not have had universal health care reform in 2006 without a ballot question uh, uh, lighting the fire there. Same thing with minimum wage. You know, the minimum wage went up because activists were gathering the signatures. And I think we're going to see that uh, with the millionaire's tax in 2018. Again, it's the, it's the activists driving the conversation because the legislature, as, as you said, Lauren, is risk averse. They don't want to touch it unless they really have to. And I think in 2017, if charter schools cap lift passes, if marijuana passes, you're going to see them very reluctantly roll up their sleeves and, and try to tweak it and, and pull it over to, to where they are. When you say tweak it, you mean tweak the millionaires, the so-called millionaires? No, I'm, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, meant, I meant the charter school and the, and the marijuana uh, uh, questions, if those, if those pass. I mean, with the millionaires tax, uh, that's kind of a, a whole other kettle, uh, kettle <laughs> of fish because uh, the, the activists say that, that the millionaires tax would set aside money for transportation education. Uh, you can't do that. The legislature does that. So it, it would be the legislature acting on that uh, if, if the millionaires tax passes as well. One last question. Someone explain to me what's going on with the Airbnb legislation on Beacon Hill. I'm confused. There isn't any at the moment. I'm sure there's <laughs> lots of ideas of what people would like to, to see. Uh, as I understand it, and guys, please correct me if I'm wrong, but Airbnb itself, in order to maintain you know, its competitive uh, status here in the Commonwealth, wants to be taxed. It wants to be regulated. It wants to be... Uh, on the, the same plane. That's what I don't understand. You have an industry that is politely saying, please tax me. I think because they don't want to, it to be different in New Hampshire versus Rhode Island versus Massachusetts. Uh, and this is what we see a lot. Like Amazon made a deal finally to collect state taxes for us because uh, these big international, multi, you know, international corporations, they don't want a patchwork. They don't want to deal with 51 different jurisdictions uh, of who charges what for and how it goes down. So, you know, if they want to be taxed so that they are at least uh, on the books in the, the right way. I, I think this is also kind of a, a just bigger picture, a maturing of Silicon Valley and, and the tech industry realizing that Washington, D.C. and other regulators are paying attention to them and they have to get in the game. 
uh, if they're not in the game, they're not going to be involved in writing the rules, and the rules might not be written in their favor. This is this is the anti-Uber stance. You know, we saw Uber that was so averse to any sort of regulation, and now they've kind of realized that, all right, this is how the game is played. You're right, they've grown up a little bit, and they understand how this process actually works. And I think also this kind of measure of goodwill by basically saying, hey, we're Airbnb, we want to exist, we want to cooperate, and we want to, you know, exist within the existing confines of power, that gives them a certain level of like leverage with legislators that I don't think that we've necessarily seen in other industries like this that are coming onto the scene so quickly. Uh, I'll let you have the final word. Why then is Governor Baker so resistant to uh, approving a tax that an industry says it needs to legitimize itself? Because, because he said that he would not raise taxes and that is breaking a promise for him. Except for the, the 30 seconds where he said he was into it. Yes, and, and, and also depend, and depending on how you look at it with regard to the Uber law or ride hail hire law that was just passed, which also levies like a slight tax, but it doesn't really count. But this is, but this is actually like a very, very tangible tax increase that can subsequently be used against Charlie Baker should he actually decide to run for governor in 2018. Okay, this sounds like a tangible spot to close up. Let me thank you all, Mike, Lauren, Gin. Thank you. Thank you. No problem. Adam Riley will be back for the next installment of The Scrum. You can get past episodes of The Scrum at wgbhnews.org slash blogs slash scrum or pick it up via SoundCloud or Stitcher. If you have a comment, an idea, or yes, even a complaint, drop us a line at scrum at wgbh.org. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. I'm Peter Kansas, and goodbye until next time. I don't think we were reverent enough. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>